And our passage this week is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 to 58, page 961 in the Church Bibles. Paul has reminded them of the gospel he delivered to them, of a once dead but resurrected Savior. He's applied it to their own lives. If Christ was truly raised, then so surely must all his people be. And he continues in verse 35, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a naked kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives to it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, a living soul. The last Adam, that is Jesus, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. And as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I'll tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet... For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, 
who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Nothing we go through in this life feels more bleak and hopeless than lowering a coffin into the ground. Some of us find that moment so hard to face that we spend our time trying to dream up ways of softening the blow when the time comes. But there's always a final moment. There has to be a goodbye. And if it doesn't happen at the graveside of a cold Scottish grave, then it will happen somewhere else. It'll happen as the curtains close in the crematorium. And however it happens, it is such a twee, mundane end to something so infinitely precious and complex and rich as a human life. There is nothing we face that confronts us more starkly with the reality that we are utterly powerless. And that is how every human story that has ever been told is going to end, isn't it? And if that's true, then how does anything we do in this body have any real meaning? Isn't it so cruel that hardwired into every human heart is that ache to make a difference, for our lives to mean something, to leave something behind that changes this world for the better, that doesn't crumble away the moment we're gone. Isn't that how all of us feel? I just want to do something that makes a difference. But death seems to make a mockery of even that. And Paul has been very, very direct, has he not, in warning the Corinthians about that reality. They have made everything about life in this age. They've made the Christian life about arriving at a place of spiritual enlightenment so that Jesus makes me the most spiritual me I can be. It's what this is all for. But Paul has warned them in very blunt terms that if they carry on like that, they will find all of it. Everything they do and everything they cling to will be empty, in vain. And yet look at the wonderful way the chapter ends in verse 58. There is one kind of human story that is not like that, not in vain. One way to spend your life that is not ultimately empty and coming to nothing. And the wonderful thing, the shocking thing, is that it is deeply, deeply ordinary. It's not about heroics. It's about plodding on with the work of Jesus. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and immovable. In other words, don't be shaken off the hope and the priorities that I handed down to you. Instead, always abound in the work of the Lord. So what is that then? What is Jesus' work? Well, the work of the Lord is the work that Paul has been demonstrating to us from start to finish in this letter. It is humble, lowly service so that others might be built up in love and brought into his eternal joy. 
It's a kind of work that he calls their labor or toil. That's a word full of tears and frustration. This is ordinary, life-spending work. We'll turn the page next week, and we find another man doing the work of the Lord, the same phrase, a man called Timothy, Paul's protege, and it's killing him. It's not at all glamorous. In fact, before he arrives, Paul has to say to the Corinthians, when you see him doing that kind of work, don't despise him for it, because they will. The world despised it in Jesus, and the Corinthians have loathed it in Paul. It is so, so ordinary. Preach the cross. Die to self. Don't pretend. But isn't it an astonishing, wonderful thing that it's that kind of work, ordinary Christian stuff, that despite all human appearances to the contrary, is not a waste of a life. There is one kind of human story that is rich and full of meaning because this life is for spending. Now that frame around this whole chapter is very important because it tells us what this argument is for, what it's meant to do to us. This is not actually a chapter about metaphysics, about the nature of the soul or the place of matter in the afterlife, no. This is a chapter about ethics, a chapter about hope in the face of emptiness, hope that means it is safe to spill out every drop of this life in very ordinary ways while we follow Paul following Jesus. This chapter exists because what us human beings truly believe about the future and how centrally we hold those beliefs radically changes how we will spend our today. But we need persuading because there is nothing more bleak and hopeless than the reality we are confronted with constantly. Watching a coffin sink into the ground and there is nothing quite like the idea of a bodily resurrection to make the wise and the sophisticated of this world sneer. Remember, that is exactly how Paul himself was treated, isn't it? When he went to Athens, he went to the heart of human learning, and he told them about the resurrection of the dead, and most of them laughed at him. Well, that is what is happening at the start of this passage in verse 35. These are not neutral questions here. It's why he calls them fools. You stupid person, verse 36. It is strong. A fool in the Bible is someone who thinks they know better than the living God. They sneer and they don't fear. So this isn't an innocent question of a hungry mind, hungry for God's truth, trying to wrap their heads around it all. If that's you, Paul would be thrilled to talk to you about that. No, this is something very different. This is the sneering of sophisticated fools who think that all this talk of a bodily resurrection sounds crass and crude, as if it meant God would just be resuscitating these weak, tired old corpses. John Calvin says, there is nothing more at variance with human reason than this article of faith, that the thing we lower into the ground has a future. But this whole letter has been about turning human wisdom upside down, hasn't it? Through the logic of the cross. 
One of you nailed it this week in a text to me. They wrote, I love how this letter turns all our thinking on its head. Well, that is right at the heart of this. God is in the business of reversal. He chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He brings to nothing those things that are wise and proud and impressive in this age. He brings meaning and hope where human beings see only emptiness and weakness and waste and despair. What kind of a life is the life of the dead? Well, it's a life that involves astonishing reversal. And if we get that, truly get that, absorb that, it will free us profoundly to spend the years we have left. And so Paul answers the fools and he encourages the ordinary by opening our eyes to the astonishing scale of God's reversal work. He'll show us that this astonishing world ought to teach it to us. He'll show us how an astonishing gospel confirms it to us. And he'll show us what an astonishing God promises to give to us if we'll fall in with his crucified king. How then to answer a fool who sees only value in this age and sneers at the idea of a future for the dead? Well, Paul starts in verses 35 to 41 with two analogies from the world that we can all see, God's creation out there. What an astonishing world teaches. It shows us that God's work is full of radical reversals. It's as if he's saying to them here, open your foolish eyes and look at the astonishing way even this natural world truly works. First, a lesson from seeds, and second, a lesson from species. I wonder if you've ever thought about what an insane leap of faith it is to take a dried up little husk of a seed and stick it in the mud, expecting something good to come. Imagine that in the ancient world, where there's no Tesco to deliver your groceries, no government press conference every time there's a food shortage. You might spend every penny you have on one year's bag of seed, and it has to feed your family. It is your entire hope of eating next winter. Isn't that an insane gamble? And yet, it's how we live. It's how this world works. We stick these bare kernels in the ground, naked, lifeless things in the hope of life bursting out, just like we do in the committal at a cremation or in a burial. It seems hopeless. It seems laughable. But what do we learn from the seed? We learn that even in the natural world, one death-like thing often bursts into a very different very living thing. That thing you stick in the ground is not the same as the thing that will burst out. Isn't the natural world amazing? God is working these extraordinary reversals all the time. They are so common that we don't even notice them. And then from seeds, there's a lesson from species in verse 38. God has made all different kinds of stuff, all different kinds of things, different bodies. Just as a seed is not like the plant, so a man is not like a fish, and an earthly body is not like a heavenly body. They're different. 
God has not made all bodies the same. Some of us are very ordinary and humble and naked seed. Some are very glorious, those burning globes in the night sky. And even star differs from star. You think it is so clever to sneer at these simple Christians in their belief in the resurrection. But what in the natural world makes you think God is just talking about reanimating these weak, rotting corpses? There are different kinds of bodies everywhere. And one death-like thing often bursts into a very different, very living thing. Open your eyes. It happens all around you. Isn't God's world astonishing? You'll never believe this, but genuinely, it's in the books and everything. We live in a world where these fat, maggoty little worms covered in legs shrivel up and die in a cocoon, and then they sprout beautiful wings and just fly off as butterflies. It's actually a thing that happens. Tadpoles. Tadpoles, they swim around, Stinking, decaying ponds, growing fatter and fatter, and their tails getting stumpier and stumpier until they just hop out as green frogs. Did you know that? They don't even need kissing by a princess. God just makes it happen. Really? It sounds totally mad, but ask your kids. God's world is amazing. We live in a world where beautiful human beings with rational souls are created out of nothing, and then we fall in love with them, and we watch as they grow older and older and more ravished by fallenness and time, and one day their heart stops beating altogether, and we put them in a box in the ground, and everything inside us aches with grief for years and years. And then Jesus appears out of nowhere, and at his word they burst into life, Bodies made whole and new and more glorious than ever before, a different kind of thing. It is mad, but that is actually a thing. It's what the one who made us and died for us says is going to happen. So verse 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. You see it all around you every day, just like that. It will be for the dead just as our astonishing world ought to teach us that God's work is full of radical reversal, our astonishing gospel says the same thing. And that is the message of verses 42 to 49. What an astonishing gospel confirms. Our future in Jesus is one of radical reversal. A life that is sown one way in weakness and dishonor and death will be raised in a way that looks very, very different. God's work often makes things look very different to how they seem right now. There's a contrast that runs right through this paragraph, but it is a contrast that is very surprising. There's a lot more going on here than meets the eye. At the most obvious level, it's a contrast between two types of body. Did you spot that? The natural and the spiritual. And already there's a shock there, don't you think? What on earth is a spiritual body? We think of those two words almost as opposites. The Corinthians certainly did. The spirituals seem to be what they've called themselves in this letter. 
And Paul says, no, no, a spiritual is what you will become. Not when you shed your body, but when you're clothed in something even more tangible. Now, a natural body, we kind of get that one. We've lived in one, haven't we, for years and years. A body that is subject to the laws of nature, the kind of body we inherited from Adam. Our race was made in one of those, made out of the mud. Verse 47, dust is our very essence, dust. But God breathed life into that ball of dust, verse 45. And the Bible says that Adam became a living being. Or literally, if you look down at your little footnotes, a living soul. And although it's hard to translate it, that word soul or being is the same as the word natural that runs through this paragraph. It's one contrast. One commentator tried to get it across helpfully. We live right now in soulish bodies. A person's soul in the Bible is a very physical thing. It's the breath in their lungs, their life force. A soul is the thing that animates this lump of mud that gives it physical life because we are inherently prone to disintegration. Our bodies do not have life in themselves. We are deathly, dust-like, dependent things. And in Adam, all of us are bound to return to that dust. We were taken from it, and death returns us to it. So there's something about this body, this soulish body, that makes the hopeless-looking seed a very good analogy. Just as the seed goes naked into the ground, verse 37, we leave this world with nothing. Our bodies, verse 43, they are sown in dishonor, perishable, powerless, all too natural. And aren't we confronted with that truth every time we look on our phone and see the photographs? We have these verses preached to us by every precious memory we hold. As we see our kids grow up and move on, as every day of their lives they age, they close in on who they'll be and what they're good at, and at the opportunities life is going to throw at them start to narrow down. We hear the truth of these verses preached every time someone points out a gray hair on our head or we see the lines on our faces, or we feel the slowing down in our limbs. All of it forbidding us from hiding from this. Death in slow motion. And it scares us. It makes us sentimental. We desperately want to fight it. We cling on to the past. And yet we know we can't. And the Bible says that's okay. The thing that is imperishable and glorious and powerful, it isn't behind us. It's ahead of us. Because the thing that will be raised is very, very different to the thing that was sown. Instead of soulish, natural, it will be spiritual. It won't be made of spirit. It's a spiritual body, a real body. But the thing that gives it life will not be the physical principles of this age. The thing that gives life to our resurrection bodies will be the spirit of Jesus Christ. 
John Calvin put it really helpfully, the contrast between the soul in this age and the spirit of the next age is a contrast between animation and inspiration. Our life will come from God through his spirit. We will be sown as sons of Adam, deathly, weak, natural, and that is the future of every human being, inescapable. But there is a second future for those who belong to this second man, Jesus Christ. The first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam, Jesus Christ, became not just living, but life-giving. A life-giving spirit giver. Someone full of spiritual life in himself with enough to share a resurrected resurrector. And so what wonderful confidence he speaks with there in verse 49. Read that verse, isn't it wonderful? Just as certainly as we bear the image of the man of dust, and we all do, we all feel it, just as certainly, so shall we also bear the image of the man of heaven. If you belong to Jesus, then that second future is as certain as death itself. But here's the crunch. There is no bypassing the dust and the death we inherited from Adam. Look at verse 46. It is not the spiritual that's first. It's as if, once again, he's saying, you might call yourself spirituals, you Corinthians, but remember, you don't have your spiritual bodies yet. And that's where this paragraph gets really interesting. I said there was more to it than meets the eye at first. Well, we know already from where the whole chapter ends that the point of this is not speculation about the afterlife. This is about how we spend this life in these aging bodies. So how is this bit meant to show us that? Well, look again at that set of contrasts in verses 43 and 4. See the contrast there? Inglorious, weak, unspiritual. That's us now. Those words look pretty negative, don't they? But have we seen those ideas before in this letter? Well, yes, we have. And the last time we met them, it was as an example. Isn't this exactly what Paul's own gospel ministry looked like in the eyes of those sophisticated Corinthians? Weak, unspiritual, powerless, just the cross. Back in chapter 4, verse 10, we had an almost identical set of contrasting words. We are fools for Christ's sake. You are wise in Christ. We are weak. You are strong. You are held in honor, but we in dishonor, inglorious. We are the scum of the earth. Just a coincidence? Well, what about Jesus himself? How did he describe his great life's work in John's gospel? Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and it dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. This is what Jesus came to do, to spend. And in the very next breath, he said that that death of his, that life spending, would be the pattern for every disciple. His cross is the paradigm. Whoever loves his life, he said, loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. 
Well, isn't that exactly what Paul is doing? He's following Jesus. So he's not simply saying here, life in this age is weak and dishonorable and that sucks. No. He's saying you can sow your life into gospel work, work that looks weak and dishonorable and entirely wasteful. Isn't that how so much of our gospel ministry feels? But it's okay. It's okay if you toil away at living for Jesus, battling sin, loving others, inviting them to church, speaking hope, and none of it looks like it's worth anything at all. That's okay. Because in this age, that is how life must look. It doesn't mean it's all going wrong. The glory is still to come. Paul uses death in this letter as the ultimate paradigm for the Christian life in this age, something that looks very different to the Corinthian idea of a Christian life. The life of one who knows that God will make everything look very different to how it looks right now. Or in the words of Matthew Malcolm, the scholar, Paul uses their problem of denial of the resurrection of the dead as the ultimate paradigm of the puffed-up, status-obsessed Corinthian refusal to adopt the position of the crucified. Refusing the idea of the resurrection is more than doctrinal. It's refusing to follow Jesus' example, refusing to pick up your cross. To be content with that, you really do need to trust, don't you, that God will turn everything on its head. And that is exactly what his astonishing gospel confirms. And so finally, verses 50 to 58, what an astonishing God gives. He gives glory and value to a life of lowly, ordinary toil. There really is meaning in a deeply ordinary life spent for him. But look down at verse 57. That astonishing gift is God's to give. And it's a must. There's no other way to it than by his gift. We want to jump straight to butterfly life, don't we? To skip out this whole inglorious, ordinary, deathly caterpillar bit. But no, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. There's no other way to glory than God's powerful transformation of the dead and the dying. Now, don't mistake verse 50. Again, it's not saying there's no flesh and blood in the new creation as if we'll just be these sort of floaty angel things. No. Jesus explicitly pointed to his own flesh and bones. He said, I'm not a ghost to his disciple in Luke's gospel. For all that radical change that he went through when he rose, he was recognizable. He ate barbecued fish. He rejoiced and he celebrated with his friends. His body was solid and real. It wasn't mere flesh and blood, though. It was transformed. We started this passage with a naked seed. Three times at the end, he talks about how we're clothed in something that is more, something immortal, imperishable. The resurrection is about putting on something that's more than we are right now. And verse 51, that has to be the same story for all of us 
Because no matter how spiritual we are, we are not there yet. Even the living, the impressive ones, when Jesus comes, even they who still have their earthly bodies, even they will need to be changed by God's power through his gift into something entirely different. We don't get more glorious bit by bit as we climb some spiritual ladder. No, it will happen for every one of Jesus' people, all alike, in an instant, when the trumpet sounds and he returns. And verse 54, only then, only then, when we are changed, will his victory over death be demonstrated for all. He won that victory a long, long time ago, though. And that is what changes everything today. It means we can face our weakness and our death with an entirely different mindset. Look at the taunt he sings, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? For the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Death stings because of sin. That's already a surprising thing to say, isn't it? Because we tend to think that dying is the painful bit. How often have you heard people say that? It's not death I mind, it's the dying process I'm terrified of. But the real sting is something death has in its tail. Something we have to face up to after death. You see, without sin, death would have no claim on us, no right to hurt us, to bind us, to hold us. Death is a punishment. It's a curse on the whole creation under Adam's care. And the law, God's beautiful, perfect standard of love, God's character, which every one of us has failed to measure up to, that is the measure by which death's claim on us is assessed and proven. One of the ways the law functions is as the power which enforces death's absolute right to hold and hurt every one of us sinners. Our guilt before the law is the reason death has something nasty in its tail. Because when we die at last, each one of us has to answer for our lives. When these words were first used in Hosea, they were actually calling down God's justice on his people. Where is your sting? We deserve it. But in taking away our sin on the cross, death has become like a monster without a bite. And that is why Paul can taunt it like this, ridicule it, as if he takes the accuser's own words and he throws them back in his face. He's so bold, isn't he? Most of us have never been in a war, not a proper one. We don't really know how to think about real enemies. But those real enemies, the great enemies of God's people, they should be mocked and ridiculed once they're beaten. That is a righteous thing to do. And death is the great enemy of the king. It's like some hideous fly still trying to buzz and bother away at his entire kingdom, waiting to be put under his foot. But ever since his victory over it on the cross, death has become like some giant, 
horrible insect buzzing around in our faces, still trying to terrify us, when we know its sting has been drawn. It's impotent. And we should be laughing in its face while Jesus wears the crown. Death has no claim on his people, no right to hold us. We have no sin for death to sting us with. Jesus took it all, it's all forgiven. He lived a life that was perfectly loving and perfectly good from start to finish. He met this standard of the law for his people. He paid the curse so that for us, his law becomes a thing of beauty and a warning, but not a threat. It shows us how to live, shows us what he looks like, our savior, the head of this body that we belong to and we want to follow. But so long as we're with him, one with him, the Lord's curse is gone forever. So we can laugh and we can taunt. And more important still, verse 57, we can say thanks be to God because he has given us victory. We couldn't lift a finger, but he's handed it to us, not on a platter, on a cross. And what does that do to us now? Well, we can't boast, can we? Because it's all a gift. We have nothing not received. But we can respond with gratitude. Because it means we can pour this life out in love in ways that are ordinary, ordinary, ordinary. And none of it's a waste. Ask yourself as we close, what would that look like? What would a life that is well spent for Jesus look like? I was trying to imagine that this week, and there was one particular woman who came to my mind very precious and completely obscure. Most Thursday nights, you'll find her hobbling around a hot kitchen in a church halls with massive swollen ankles and compression stockings and open-toed shoes and knuckles as gnarly and bulbous as a bag of walnuts. What do you see yourself doing at her age? One would be joking about her decrepit old body while draining six tons of steaming hot potatoes, not living in the glory days of her past, not frittering away her retirement, but spending it extravagantly, spending her last years of mobility in a church kitchen so that hundreds of Iranian men and hungry students could learn about Jesus. Sown in dishonor, sown in weakness, waiting to be raised in glory and strength. Very, very ordinary, but a life full of meaning and not in vain. Never in vain. Let's bow our heads. Gracious God, we praise you that your son, our true and better Adam, has swallowed up death for us once and for all. Thank you that by your amazing, transforming power, nothing in this dying world is as it seems. 
thank you that there is meaning and value and permanence to all that we do out of love for Jesus, no matter how weak and futile that ministry might feel now. So help us, we pray, to spend what is left of these lives in these bodies with extravagance and generosity and in absolute confidence of your power to turn everything around to the glory of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.